Right now, though, taking a look at long-term care, and there is a new report out that looks at some of the short to falls when it comes to keeping people in long-term care safe. And we know that Jagmeet Singh, who is the owner, oh, sorry, the uh, leader of uh, the NDP, the federal NDP, has been speaking about this and speaking out about this. This is Jagmeet Singh speaking last month. We've seen lots of uncertainty, lots of worry, lots of pain. But what's been the most heartbreaking about COVID-19 has been how it has had has impacted our seniors, particularly those in long-term care. They've borne the brunt of this. And what we've noticed as well is that for-profit long-term care is worse for seniors. That's where we see the most infections, the most deaths, and the worst conditions for seniors. So in our plan, we are going to remove all profit from long-term care. Profit should never be put ahead of the care of some of the most vulnerable people in our society. Uh, Let's bring in Dan Levitt. He is the executive director of Tabor Village and uh, has agreed to come on the show. Dan, thank you so much. You're always so available to come on and talk about this. So I really appreciate your time today. Anytime, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, What would you say to those words? That was Jagmeet Singh uh, talking last month, but he's renewed this. He's looking for support in the House. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Well, I think when we start looking at for-profit versus non-profit and um, determining the role of, of that in our healthcare system, there, there, there is um, profit-making, there is a, um, a role for for-profit in, in healthcare. And then when we start looking at long-term care, um, when we start analyzing um, quality and looking at perhaps why outbreaks occurred in some nursing homes and not in others, um, and to kind of um, peg it just on um, that particular issue, I think we're, we're not taking a full um, bodied um, lens and viewpoint on why outbreaks happen. I think we should be looking at different things, for example, um, like the number of, of rooms um, that people, um, how many people you're living with in a particular room, how many multi-bedrooms there are, and the, the actual design and layout of the building, and many other factors um, that contribute to outbreaks, not just the fact if it's a for-profit or non-profit nursing home. Uh, because I think uh, at least the the perception out there is that even if it if it's a public, if it's a private, if it's some kind of combination, that there would still be because we're talking about a healthcare facility that there would still be protocols and there would still be rules that are universal. Exactly. So all nursing homes across the country, um, as long as they're funded, um, and even if they're not funded, um, they, they do have to um, comply with a set of guidelines um, that are based on um, regulations and legislation, and these are accepted in Canada and they're practiced um, around the globe, um, around the best practices for long-term care. So um, as long as you um, are providing a regulated um, service to seniors in, in long-term care or assisted living, you have to meet those standards. So the for-profit or non-profit really isn't the main issue. I think it is, um, are we hitting those standards? And that's what we should be measuring against. Uh, the Globe and Mail newspaper has published mm-hmm. a story today. It's looking at the response to COVID-19 and really drawing a difference between when the virus first hit to the second wave of the pandemic. And it cites a report that was done by the National Institute on Aging uh, that seems to to show a bit of a breakdown or a far less robust response to the second wave of the pandemic. What do you say to that? Well, I think there's lots of comparison between the first wave and the second wave, and uh, we're praying that there's no third wave. Um, but I think what, what happened um, in the second wave is that the, the amount of um, spread in the community was so high that you had um, 
people, all of us, um, we go to work and we come home and the likelihood of when we're um, going home and perhaps shopping and doing things that we do in our community um, because there's spread there, um, the likelihood of bringing it into the care home, that's how it, it came in in most cases. So um, what could we have done differently? Um, we certainly um, had restrictions on, on everybody in the community and not everybody is following the restrictions um, that are in place. And then you have, um, when you enter a care facility, um, we're screening people and we're doing it diligently. Um, how do you screen somebody who's asymptomatic, um, who presents with no symptoms and then only days later after the damage is done, the virus has spread? So could we have done testing um, if it was available and if it was um, effective, perhaps we could have. Um, those are some things just initially of how the virus comes in that perhaps we could look at. And I'm guessing any kind of investigation or study done will look at those elements to figure out how did the virus enter our buildings. And I suppose we could take any scenario and look back and think or kind of wonder, well, what would have happened if we had done this? But we have talked so much about rapid testing. And you mentioned the how do you test somebody or what, what happens when somebody's asymptomatic? Do you think that would have made a difference? I think it would have made a difference. And I guess the question really is, how would you roll it out? Um, how would you make that testing available? And it's um, certainly um, many of us, including myself, were, were suggesting that would make a difference. And I still believe it would. And I'm still a proponent of it. But really, logistically, um, rolling it out, we've seen how complicated it is to roll out a vaccine. And this kind of would have been similar, having to have um, those tests being done when you're entering the building. It might have been done uh, two or three times a week. So you need extra staff to do that. You would need people um, running the test to, to find out the results, and then it would delay people from coming and going. Um, not to say we shouldn't be doing it, but that is um, a whole system to roll that out. And I think kind of is the expectation on, on our system, which already has major challenges, to add that layer on um, it certainly complicates an already tough situation. Uh, why do you think there was such a difference, though? And this report uh, takes a look at Little Mountain, which is uh, a, a long-term care facility in Vancouver, uh, which had a, 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 just a tragic number of people die, succumb to this virus, where some other long-term care facilities weren't hit nearly as hard. Was it uh, because of the, the single site rule and maybe more adherence to that? Or what do you think would have caused such a difference? Um. I don't know the particulars of the Little Mountain Place um, outbreak, but I'm, I do have a copy of the report. Um, it's available online, and it was referenced in the, the Globe Mail article, and I, I see that it was staffing with hygiene and communicable disease control issues. And this, this is based on a, um, a complaint that was made to um, licensing the, the inspection, and they, they did find it in this case that these, um, these findings were substantiated, meaning um, they, the investigator did conclude that they believe these, these infractions, if you will, occurred. So that perhaps would have been um, the, part of the reason why um, an outbreak at something like a place like Little Mountain might have occurred. Um, so different scenarios are going to per- perhaps um, worsen a, an outbreak and uh, lead to spreading. Um, there is so many different things we can look at. Um, it could be um, the error handling units at di- a different um, home. The, the HVAC system ha- plays something in it. Um, we're looking at um, buildings that are decades um, outdated. Um, they need replacement, and um, it is promising news. 
night in Vancouver, for example, we saw the announcement for um, Dogwood Lodge um, being replaced. And we're, we're now going to be building a place like Dogwood Lodge with 14 uh, people living in one household. And instead of these large kind of institutional layouts that resemble more hospitals than they do like our own homes. So I think that that transformation of our industry will make a big difference where we have groups of people living together and the chances of spreading um, from one section of the hospital or the, the nursing home to another will be much lessened because of the cohorting of people within a regular living environment. And do you think that's something we're going to see as a permanent change when we take a look at how this pandemic has played out in long-term care? Will that become the norm moving forward? I believe so. Um, I'm hopeful and optimistic that um, these larger um, layouts where you have, in our case, 70 people living kind of in one large um, hallway together, it just doesn't seem how you would be able to control and contain um, the virus in that way. So having these small um, homes, and they're like a group home. Imagine just a large residential space where 12 people live together and the staff who are working, they're they're self-contained. They're always working in the same unit. I believe that's going to change. And I think the bigger responsibilities that I think we all have and the listeners um, hopefully are are thinking this way too is, is how do we combat ageism because I think it is ageism is the reason why we haven't made that monumental shift that we need to in long-term care. We haven't invested the kind of capital resources we need in order to really move from the model that we um, started with in the 70s when the program was first introduced to a better model where we can contain um, infections and even more importantly, enhance quality of life where seniors can really embrace um, their family members, where they're part of that community, and they're not isolated, and they can get to get they can get outside on a day like today, where it's sunny and people want to um, enjoy the outdoors, where um, the kind of comforts that we all take for granted are um, made sure that we have that in long-term care, especially um, in our last months and years of our life. All right, Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for coming back on the show. Anytime, Jill. Well, yesterday afternoon, I was sitting in my car in a parking lot waiting for someone. And while I was sitting there looking at my phone, doing whatever I was doing, I heard a crash. I heard a loud, what sounded like a crack crash. I didn't know what it was. I looked to my right and there I saw a Tesla that had jumped over the curb of the parking lot and smashed into one of the benches that was there, which would normally have people sitting on it if it was a nice day. Thankfully, there was no one on the bench. No one was hurt. The driver was not hurt. And because of social media, after things settled down, down a bit. I took a picture and tweeted it out. I wasn't trying to shame anybody. I took the picture and made sure it didn't identify anyone in the photo. But I was genuinely wondering because I heard the driver say that it was a new car and she wasn't used to one pedal driving. And I didn't know what that meant. I had no clue. I sent it out there and that led to a flurry of responses and a lot of confusion over what exactly this all means. So we thought we would go to an expert. And Zach Spencer is joining me now, veteran automotive journalist, to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Uh, nice to hear your voice again, Jill. I, I knew that you would be able to answer these questions. So I'm so glad you're able to be here. What is single pedal driving? Okay, well, we have to back it up just a little bit and explain exactly what is going on with an electric car. Of course, Tesla is an electric car. So when you accelerate, you're using electricity, and that turns an electric motor, which propels you down the road. Now, the great thing about those electric motors is when you're not sending electric current through it and you're slowing down or braking, that electric motor turns into a generator. 
So that's called regenerative braking. So every single time you lift off the throttle and every single time you're coming down to a stop sign or a stoplight, electricity is actually going back into the battery. So in order to optimize how much regenerative braking you can achieve with an electric car, because as we all know, range is the most important factor with an electric car. You don't want to use all of your electricity. You want to save some to get you farther down the road. Uh, Car companies have developed this one brake solution or this one pedal driving solution. So every single time you lift off the what would it be the gas pedal or the accelerator, the the electric motor turns into a generator and starts putting electricity back into the battery. That causes a braking sensation. So what they figured out is you can drive really on and off the accelerator, modulating how much uh, electricity you're putting into the car and how much you're getting back into the battery. So this one uh, pedal driving is a technique that you do have to kind of master, but most people learn it pretty quickly. And some systems are very good, will allow you, you could be driving along a street in Vancouver at 50 kilometers an hour, and then you see the stoplight, uh, you know, half block down, you lift off uh, the accelerator, and the car will brake and slowly slow down all the way to zero. So you're stopped there at the stop uh, light, and you haven't even touched the brake. So that is um, basically what's at play here. And it does take a bit of practice. My guess is in the situation you um, witnessed, um, there was some confusion. We've seen stories of especially elderly people mixing up the gas and the brake and driving through store windows. And we've seen those stories on the news. Uh, this could have been the case where the, you know, they were relying so much on this one pedal brake uh, driving that they forgot that there's a real brake pedal there. The brake pedal still exists. Right. And that's where some of the confusion was uh, that uh, there was this idea of there is only one pedal. And then people started sending photos of this as well, saying, no, no, there are two pedals. That it doesn't mean there's only one. Exactly. So you have the accelerator, you have the brake, you can drive um, without engaging this uh, one pedal system. In fact, I was driving um, another manufacturer um, and, and experience, and my wife was driving, and I was a passenger. And this on and off the accelerator can make the passenger sometimes feel a little queasy. Your head bobs back and forth. So uh, you, you don't need to uh, use this. You can turn it off and just use the, the accelerator for going and then the brake for stopping like you would with any other car. So would there be a scenario, though, where, where you would never really have to use the brake? I mean, unless you had to brake suddenly, that you could drive this and, and knowing where the stop signs and stoplights are, you would never actually have to put your foot on the brake? Yeah, absolutely. People who have this technology in their electric cars, they really kind of master this. And um, there are people that are called hypermilers trying to get the absolute most range they can out of their charge. Um, and they, 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 it's like a bit of a game with themselves to see if they can drive from A to B and not have to touch the brake. It's, it's, just a, it's a bit entertaining at the same time. But yeah, depending on the car and the system, um, you can actually drive entirely with just one pedal. Um, it's a good practice to, you know, use both, um, especially for hard braking. And, and the other, uh, let's throw in another complexity to this. A lot of these cars have forward cameras and radar and sensors in the front. So not only will the car brake with just one pedal, the camera and the systems in the front know that there's cars stopped in front of you. So it will brake um, at a sort of a glide path down to zero, knowing that there are cars in front. So the automated systems and a single uh, pedal driving can all work together. 
Well, that, that was one of the other questions, too, because this car took out the bench. And if there had been someone sitting on this bench, they could have very likely been hurt. And again, luckily there wasn't because somebody else was asking or, or pointing out that that looked odd because they thought these cars do have sensors that they wouldn't allow the car to accelerate like that and take out a bench or a person. I thought the same thing. And then my question to you, Jill, do you remember what the bench was made of? Was it concrete or wood or steel? I think it's steel. Yeah, well, that is a bit interesting because these cameras and the sensors are made to recognize, obviously, other automobiles, right? So that's mostly uh, steel and glass. So they can sense that it's a vehicle and it's not, um, you know, a child. And then other systems are much more advanced and they can tell that they're actually dogs and cats and people. Um, So what, because if this was a new Model 3, for example, that the person was driving, it comes standard with what's called forward collision uh, mitigation. Meaning if, if you're driving along the street and somebody jams on the brakes and you don't touch the, the brake, the car will stop for you at up to certain speeds. Now, what I'm surprised about in this situation is that uh, it didn't try to stop um, uh, before it hit the, uh, the bench, because if it has metal in it, it might think it's another car. It could have been confused by what the object actually is. Hmm. Uh, getting back to the, like you said, kind of the learning and, and for drivers of these vehicles, it becomes how much uh, how much drive, how much range can you get by doing this one pedal driving? Uh, do you think there's an issue for, I, I mean, I drive a standard car. And so the odd time if I'm oh, driving... Oh, God, there's somebody out there still drives a standard. <laughs> but, but I notice it when if I'm, if I'm, say, borrowing my dad's car for something or his truck, I, I will almost slam on the brake and the gas at the same time because I'm so used to driving standard. Uh, because it does take a little bit to retrain your brain on what you're doing. Are we doing enough to make sure drivers of these vehicles are learning this new way of driving before getting out there into the mix? Well, there's nothing that's stopping anybody from buying an electric car with this system and using it without any additional training. I would suggest for anybody that's buying an electric car that has the one-pedal feature, first of all, drive the car as you usually would with the two pedals. So use the accelerator for going, use the brake for stopping. That's, and then you can add in um, the one-pedal driving in places where it's not that busy and kind of get used to how the system works. I do like um, the General Motors approach. They have, uh, you know, the paddle shifters behind the steering wheel. They've driven a car with the what they call them flappy paddle shifters. And in the, in the Bolt EV, for example, they have a, instead of the, the, the paddle shifter changing gears as it would with a conventional internal combustion engine, you actually pull on the, on the left paddle and it brakes for you. So you're not using your foot, you're using your hand like mm. you would with a bicycle brake. And I kind of like that one better myself, but it's a personal taste. All right. Well, thank you, Zach, for coming on and clarifying this. I understand fully now how this idea of single pedal uh, driving works. Uh, Appreciate your time. We'll leave it there, but great to have you on the show. And thank God you're still driving a manual. Somebody out there is buying it. That's good. (laughs) (laughs) That music is a big hint on what we're talking about now. A pinned tweet by Terry Towner, who is a Coquitlam City Councillor, talked about enjoying challenges, saying especially during challenging times. And after being inspired by an article in the Tri-City News newspaper by a woman who ran every Port Coquitlam street, she decided to run every street in Coquitlam. So this was back in October and currently at 15%. Well, we saw the update today 
today. And so we wanted to talk to Terry Towner about almost completing this big task. And she is on the line with us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, when, when you put that out there and said you had c- committed to it, uh, any second thoughts as you started getting into it? No, you know what? Um, I re- it really ramped up for me in October after I recovered from a concussion. And uh, it actually, I got a little bit obsessed about it. <laughs> it was very challenging and it kept me focused on other things other than the challenge, the pandemic and other things going on. And just in case people don't recall, that was you got a concussion when you got hit by a drone, correct? Yes, I did. It came out of nowhere and hit me as I rode my bike, Eesh. right between my helmet and my glasses. Ouch. And are you doing okay now? Yes, I am. Thank you very much. Uh, so so you, you're recovering from a concussion. We're dealing with a pandemic. You see this story about someone who ran every street in Poco. Were you a runner at that point? Well, I have been a runner since my teens and off and on my whole life. I have all, I'm in my 50s now, but I have always gone back to running. And 2020 was a year that I went back to running. (laughs) I love running. I love my city. And after seeing that article in the local paper, I decided, what a cool idea. I'm going to do it as well. But I realized that as I was doing this, I think it was really, I'll be completely authentic here. It was mental health care, like self-care for me as well, focusing on this challenge and discovering more about my own city and getting fitter. Yeah. So how did you start? Because I imagine it's daunting to say, I'm going to run every street in this city. How do you even start? Well, first I had to link up my uh, Strava app, which I had just started using for walks and hikes and runs, to City Strides, which is a web-based app that syncs runners' running apps to City Strides. So it keeps track of the streets in your city. And as you run through every intersection of every street, you get credit for having completed that street. You have to run every meter of every street to get credit for it. You can't just run a part of it. Hmm. So once I synced it and I got past credit for a little bit of Strava time, so I'd already had a few streets run when I officially started to um, do this challenge. And then I would just go out, you know, three times a week and pick a route. And I started in the flat part of our city, which is my end of town. And uh, I worked up and last week I finished the hilliest part of the city, which is up in Burke Mountain. Wow. I, I think that's probably a good strategy if you'd started with the hillier part that, that could have been that could have been overly challenging, maybe. Oh, I waited till I was fitter. <laughs> and because... A lot of developments in Coquitlam are cul-de-sacs. You actually end up running streets twice because you have to run up the cul-de-sac and then back. So it's uphill, downhill, or downhill, uphill. So I would say a large portion of streets in Coquitlam I ended up running twice because you can't cut through. (laughs) No, I guess not. Uh, Three times a week. So how long were you running for at a time? Well, it would start out, I wasn't as fit last summer, so maybe half an hour at a time, maybe about 5K. And as I've become fitter and fitter, I actually ran a half marathon last week or a couple of weeks ago. And so I was getting up into 10, 13, 15, 17 kilometer runs near the end. And I was going out pretty much every day. I was taking one day off a week. Wow. I got addicted. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Um, And so what did you learn or what sticks out the most as far as obviously, I'm guessing you saw streets or saw things that maybe you hadn't seen before. What else are you taking away from this experience? 
Well, I really um, realized how much I truly love Coquitlam and its diversity. <clears throat> we always say that it's a diverse city as far as the people goes and the multiculturalism, but it's really a diverse city in that it's incredibly urban with the SkyTrain and our downtown city centre that's growing. It also has agricultural land, so blueberry farms and mountain roads, and then there's housing that ranges from mobile home communities all the way up to, you know, the ex-Street of Dreams, beautiful mansion-type homes. So it's the neighbourhoods are very diverse. Some are more dense, some are older. Lots of tree canopy in Coquitlam. I just really noticed the diversity and the community spirit. I discovered an abundance of little libraries, adopted streets for the litter cleanup, painted rocks that started after the pandemic, community spirit messages, decorated trees. I just really noticed the beauty in my city. I discovered corners that I didn't know existed. And I just got a real feeling of community pride, community spirit. Hmm. Uh, th- that's amazing. And, and did you did people cheer you on or did people know that you were doing this? Not really. I had a couple of one friend or two friends that are sort of in my bubble to maybe drive me up to the top of Westwood Plateau and I'd park my car at the bottom so I could run down. So a, a couple of people in my life helped me so I'd only have to run one way by driving me. Um, and people on my social media knew, but I didn't really ever let anybody know when I'd be heading into their neighborhood. So after I'd post certain things, they would scold me and say, hey, if I knew you were running by, I would have brought you out a glass of lemonade or clapped for you. But some toddlers one day cheered me on as they sat in a car on the street. And some people, you know, waved me on and cheered me on. But I don't think they really knew what I was doing. No, they might have just thought you were running by and had no clue that uh, you were on the quest to go on every street. Exactly. I got some strange looks because I had to run in some, you know, dead end streets off the beaten track or... (laughs) I tackled Lougheed Highway yesterday, and why would anybody run along Lougheed Highway? So, I mean, I know that some people were giving me odd looks, but I just carried on, (laughs) did my thing. Um, Now, when we reached out to you, I think you had posted that you were at 99%. So uh, do you still have a street or an area still to cover? I have not quite finished Lougheed Highway. So one thing interesting about this challenge is, you know, a five-house cul-de-sac is equal to one street. And Lougheed Highway, which stretches from Burnaby all through Coquitlam into Poco, is one street. So, and there's over 1,100 streets in Coquitlam. So I tackled most of Lougheed Highway yesterday. Um, Parts of it were very scary. I had an escort driver. We did it really late at night. I have between half a kilometre and one kilometre left, and then I will be 100% done. Wow. And uh, so when do you plan on doing that? I'm thinking maybe today on my way to the gym or tomorrow if I don't get out today, but I kind of want to just get it done. Yeah, and the weather's nice today. The weather's nice, yes. (laughs) Um, So what do you do once you're going to be completing this challenge very soon? What do you do when you're done? (laughs) My body is allowing me to do all this running, and I honestly love it. So I think I'm going to start on Port Moody next, and then Poco and then hopefully do and more in Belcara. So I'll do all five of the cities and villages in what constitutes the Tri-Cities. And are you challenging or have you heard from any other, say, civic politicians or people that maybe are interested in, in also doing something like this? 
No, they make fun of me. But I, um, I've done a few posts and I've had quite a few messages where people have asked me about City Strides and, and asked me and, and they want to start it too. And even my tweet that I put out a couple hours ago, people are asking me about how this is done, that it's such a neat idea. I think it's win-win. It, you learn more about your city, you get in shape. And when you're focused on the challenge, you don't really think about how tired you are or how far you've gone. It just sort of keeps you focused. Well, and do you think that helped in that even if somebody doesn't have the goal, say, of running every street in their city, there is something about having that map. And again, you've, you've tweeted it out if people want to see it. There's something about, I think, as humans, we, we tend to be very reward driven, even if the reward is looking at this map and seeing exactly where you ran and how much ground you covered. Did that kind of help you as you were doing this? Totally. But then I'm very goal oriented. I'm a quantitative person. I like results and data and I measure everything I always want to know how far I ran how how long it took me I've always been like that even at the gym how much did I lift how many times did I lift it so it works for me but I've talked to other people too there's another woman in my circle that also ran all the streets in Coquitlam and we were making fun of ourselves one day laughing about how obsessive we became (laughs) you know finding every opportunity and when you're in a different neighborhood to oh do I have time to park the car and get out and run some streets (laughs) So <laughs> we had a lot of fun with it. All right. Well, I think it's uh, it's so impressive, and I'm so glad you were able to come on the show. And my guess is you've probably inspired uh, some uh, other people to do, maybe not every street in their city, but, but to do something. Uh, good luck on the final stretch. I look forward to your update on that. Thank you so much, and thank you for your interest in this story. Well, as you just heard on the news, the province and the city of Victoria have signed an agreement and the goal is to end the encampments that are in place in that city. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about how this will unfold is Lisa Helps, the mayor of Victoria. Mayor Helps, thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, what will this do uh, in the short term then as far as helping the people who are living in these parks and to uh, stop these encampments? Well, I think the the short-term plan is well underway, and I'm happy to outline that. I think the significance of the MOU is we know that even when these encampments are uh, done uh, by the end of April, which is the deadline that has been set, uh, there will still be people that are living in motels and arenas and temporary housing solutions, and we don't want those people to be back out uh, in tents, uh, you know, in two or three months. And so it's a it's a short-term and long-term agreement to make sure that everybody. Uh, who's currently temporarily housed or living in an encampment, uh, gets gets housing. And when we say get housing, is there a particular uh, type of housing as far as uh, it, it not being shelter beds, or do you know what kind of housing people will be getting? Uh, there are a range of options. So we've got a significant number of units under construction in the region right now. Um, a lot of affordable housing, not much supportive housing. And really that is, I think, the big gap that needs to be filled Uh, There are people who are living outside who simply uh, just have lost their jobs or don't have a paycheck uh, and who don't have uh, a need other than to be able to uh, afford to live somewhere. And so affordable housing uh, meets those needs, but supportive housing. So people who may have mental health or addictions challenges, uh, people with chronic health issues, uh, those are all, uh, I would say, gaps in our housing ecosystem. And I think this, uh, the MOU is a good step to continue our work together with the province to make sure that we've got the right kind of housing to meet the needs of people who are currently uh, outside. 
Uh, in the release today, it also says, uh, and you touched on this, that uh, part of the MOU includes installing fencing and providing bylaw enforcement to prevent people from moving back into the parks. Uh, does that mean the parks are going to be fenced so the public won't be able to use them either? No. Um, in some cases, uh, as in Beacon Hill Park, it's such a large area. Uh, and so there will be fencing put up where remediation is needed. Um, but no, Beacon Hill Park won't be closed. Uh, you know, in some ways, because we've had encampments spread out around the city, uh, they've occupied smaller areas in larger parks. And so those areas will be fenced off, but no parks will remain open to the public. So how do you make sure then somebody doesn't set up a tent or these camps don't set up in parts of these parks that aren't fenced off? Well, that's where bylaw comes into play. So uh, the City of Victoria voted last Thursday to uh, rescind 247 uh, sheltering uh, as of May 1st. So our expectation, uh, and the province is on track to meet this, is that everybody who's currently sheltering out of doors will be offered an inside space. Uh, Once that happens by April 30th, uh, there will be no more uh, 247 camping. So uh, a Supreme Court decision in 2009 says that if there isn't shelter, adequate shelter available, uh, someone may uh, choose to or be able to set up a tent from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. But, um, you know, I think we all know that parks are not campgrounds. Uh, they've been used as emergency shelters in a pandemic situation, but uh, that, that's how we'll prevent uh, uh, future encampments. Uh, So will bylaw then actively, uh, if there are tents, say, set up past 7 a.m. in the morning, will they actively be telling people you need to take this down, you need to get your tent out of this park? That's what they've been doing since 2009. Uh, So then how did we end up with these encampments? Because COVID hit, uh, shelters closed, everyone was told to shelter in place, and City of Victoria followed public health advice and changed our bylaws to allow 247 sheltering uh, for the for the period uh, early in the pandemic. Uh, do, do you think, too, with this memorandum, so is something different in this memorandum as far as the, the, the different groups that are involved are, are the same as we've had in the past as far as the province, uh, the civic government, BC Housing? Has, has anything changed as far as the strategy or as far as making sure people do get housing and there is adequate housing available? That's a great question. Uh, I think the pandemic really has been a magnifying glass on the fact that our housing and health system uh, are inadequate. Uh, Again, early in the pandemic, I mean, it is really unthinkable. And I would have hated to be uh, the person who had to make these decisions. You know, shelters that had 50 people uh, had to cut down to 25 and and literally say to 25 people, you can't come back here. Uh, So I think the pandemic has uh, given us all some urgency um, and, and deepened our working relationships. I think right now, and I know because I convene meetings with them weekly, we're seeing housing, health and the city uh, work more closely and more deeply together than we have in the past. And that can only be to the benefit not only of people who are uh, living outside, but to the benefit of the entire community who wants to see people inside and, uh, and not, uh, not sleeping in parks. Uh, Are you concerned at all, and this often comes up whenever we're talking about encampments anywhere really uh, in BC, but uh, particularly in southern BC, uh, that uh, there's this idea of people that come here, and I know the numbers fluctuate and it's tough to get an actual number, that people that that may come here from out of province and then get word that uh, by doing this you're promised housing or you get housing uh, provided to you. Are you concerned that it almost makes it, uh, it makes it as more of a draw for people to come? come here? Um, 
Maybe a little bit, but I think the fact that we are um, ending 247 camping at the end of April uh, should send a signal that Victoria's parks are not campgrounds. They are parks uh, open for public use. You know, and I, I talk to politicians uh, uh, in uh, across the country, really, but I think Toronto is the best example. Um, and I, I hope this isn't still the case, but uh, not, not many months ago, there were 50 uh, encampments set up in Toronto. And uh, in Toronto, people come from uh, more rural areas, from, from around, uh, you know, north of the city, west of the city. And so I guess the point is that anytime you are a major urban centre, whether it's uh, Victoria or Vancouver or Toronto or, or Saskatoon, uh, people will come to where services are available. So the answer to that is making sure that services and housing are available in every nook and cranny of the province and the country so people can get the supports uh, where, they're, where they're living. Uh, are you confident that this timeline can be met as far as uh, the May 1st deadline? Yes, I, I really am. Uh, I'm confident because Minister Evie is confident uh, and the province is, I think, on track. With the support of the city, we, we adopted a temporary use permit last Thursday for 30 tiny homes uh, on a city-owned piece of land, so that's certainly part of it. Uh, the province has announced 70 additional um, indoor spaces that will be uh, opening by the end of April. Uh, There were 220 people who needed housing. I think we're down to about 106 who are currently living in parks. Uh, So those, uh, those numbers match up. All right. Mayor Helps, we'll leave it there. Appreciate you taking the time for us today. Thanks. No problem. Take care. Okay, that song's making me laugh a little bit because we are talking owls right now and we are joined by the facility coordinator for the Northern Spotted Owl Breeding Program. Jasmine McCulley joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, This is a great story and I think a lot of people uh, will be inspired by this. This is, uh, uh, the breeding facility is welcoming a California relative. How did this all come about? Yeah, so down in California is the southern limit of the Northern Spotted range. So we got a message from a rehab center down in near San Francisco, and they had a, a bird that had to have an eye taken out because of uh, an injury, and they thought he would be a really good addition to the breeding program, and we very much agreed. So um, we were working for over over a year to get him from California up to our facility in Langley and add him to the breeding program. And what were some of the the issues? Did the pandemic play into that or is it just there's a lot of paperwork when you're trying to do something like this? Uh, It's both. Um, Definitely the border closures was a a big um, logistical challenge for us. So typically we would just, uh, so he had a journey from California then up to Portland and Typically, we would just drive down to Portland and pick them up and and no problems there. But due to border closures, we weren't able to do that. And just with COVID delays and and permitting um, as well, there were just some some challenges there. So it took over a year to get him here, but we're very, very happy that he's here now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Just to go back to his injury, I'm guessing that with an injury injury like that, it, it would be difficult for him to survive in the wild? Right, exactly. So owls rely heavily on eyesight for hunting and And Callie was just determined unreleasable because of uh, the vision impairment. Uh, So how has he taken to his new home? Uh, He's doing very, very well. We couldn't have asked for a better adjustment. So he got here on March 3rd and we just gave him some time to settle in. And he's been eating really well. He got um, a health check by our veterinarian and he's all clear. Uh, He's a little late in the year to be breeding. Uh, He hasn't been introduced to a female quite yet, but we're hoping next year um, he will get a female and we can have some chicks from him. 
Uh, how do owls kind of respond in that uh, I've only seen them really uh, in the wild and uh, spotted them in the wild, but how do they respond as far as uh, with humans? Uh, do they warm up to humans or what's that like? So the owls are, uh, the spot owl specifically is a pretty um, docile species. They're not really um, too aggressive at all with humans and, and Callie is adjusted pretty well to being here at the facility. We tr- do try to keep his distant from him as possible from all of the owls because we want them to stay wild. Um, but they're a pretty chill, relaxed species, and uh, Callie just hangs out in his tree and roosts all day and um, is, is, has a nice hiding spot for hum- from humans. We want to make sure that he's comfortable um, in, in his aviary. And then is it like owls in the wild as far as do they kind of hunt for their own food? Do you provide that to them? How does that work? We do provide food to all of the owls here um, because we want to make sure that they're eating properly. And so we breed our our rats and mice mice here on site, and then we feed them to the owls. Uh, We've already euthanized them at that point, but um, they do go for live too. Sometimes we'll have live prey opportunities for them, and they'll hunt um, just to kind of enrich them a little bit and make sure that they have that hunting instinct um, still raring to go. (laughs) And talk a bit more about the breeding program and why it's so important that uh, this program exists. Yeah, so the northern spotted owl is endangered in BC. So the the range is quite small. It's in south coastal BC and we estimate that there's less than six left in the wild. Uh, Historically, the population size was about a thousand. So we have a a severe decline, uh, partly in in fact, to the uh, loss of old growth forests. They need forests that are about 200 years old. So there's just not that type of habitat around anymore. And what is left is is quite fragmented, um, as well as the barred owl uh, coming from eastern North America has added an extra layer of competition that the spot owl hasn't adapted to. Um, So we are here in Langley breeding our 29 spotted owls to hopefully be able to release them back into protected habitat. And what role do they play as far as uh, a role in the wild, the importance of that? So the spot owl is an umbrella species, which means that uh, by protecting the spot owl, you're able to protect a lot more other plants and animals that share the same habitat. Uh, Specifically, the spot owls, one pair will have about a 30 square kilometer territory. So by protecting um, the spot owl, you're by extension protecting 30 square kilometers of extremely valuable old growth forests. And when you talk about the loss of their habitat, the loss of forests, is it possible then if the breeding is successful, are you putting owls though back into areas where there isn't enough space for them? Well, the owls will be put into uh, release areas that are studied and and determined suitable for them. So the hope is that um, the remaining habitat will choose the best spots to be putting the owls in based on uh, some science. And how successful, as far as you've been working in with the breeding program, is it uh, is it generally successful as far as uh, when the time comes and the time is right, uh, you're hopeful there will be those chicks, or is it more complicated? It's very complicated. Uh, the spot owl breeding program here is the only one in the world for this species. So we've been at it um, since 2007, and there's been a lot of challenges. Uh, because the species, nobody's done this before, we don't really have a a recipe book of like how to do it properly. So it's a lot of steep learning curves over the years. And every year it seems like there's a new challenge and new learning to to be had. But we're hopeful that over the course of all these years that we've, um, you know, I wouldn't say mastered, but we've gotten really close to having uh, the perfect recipe of how to breed spotted owls. How long then would you keep them if the breeding part is successful? How long do they stay with you before the owls would be released into the wild? 
they would stay with us for at least a year um, just to make sure that uh, they're they're healthy and that they can train them on how to hunt. But we also have, there's that sweet spot of making sure that they're not habituated to humans as well. So um, we'll have to determine that closer to when we're doing the releases, but they will stay with us for at least a year. All right. Well, we'll be interested to see uh, how things turn out and any updates uh, on this story. But uh, great to hear uh, that Callie has arrived and, and is doing so well. Yeah, yeah, he's doing really well. We're excited. We're going to be um, having eggs any day now. So if people are interested in following along, they can find us on Facebook or on Instagram and uh, follow along as we continue this breeding season. All right. What should they look for on uh, social media if people want to find you? So if they look up NSO Breeding Program or just go to nsobreedingprogram.com, they can find all the information. All right. Uh, We'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Jasmine, to talk more about this. Great. Thanks, Jill. Well, it is that time of year where a lot of people are thinking about spring cleaning, maybe procrastinating or maybe jumping on getting it done. And that could bring a lot of questions. How to get rid of that old furniture. Now we're also talking about how to get rid of PPE. Well, our show contributor, John Jang, is here with all of the information you need. Good afternoon, Jill. It's the first Monday of the spring season. And with the sun shining, maybe it's got you in the mood to think about spring cleaning. You know how it is. Out with the old, in with the new. And as a personal example, I'm in the market for a new mattress right now. And even though it's important to pick out the right new mattress, it's just as important to dispose of my old one properly. I mean, let's be honest. How many times have you seen an old mattress left behind next to a poor dumpster? So to help eliminate this problem, we are now joined by Andrew Marr, Director of Solid Waste Planning with Metro Vancouver. Andrew, thanks for giving us some time here today. You're very welcome. So what is the first step in recycling or discarding old furniture that we might have laying around at home? Well, a great place to start is is a new resource that we have. It's called Waste in Its Place. So if you go to wasteinitsplace.ca, Uh, We've sort of compiled all the information on your options for recycling and properly disposing of of unwanted items. Um, There's information on whether or not your municipality has a large or bulky item pickup program. And there's also information about uh, the proper way to dispose of personal protective equipment, so masks and gloves, uh, very commonly littered items these days. You don't have to walk very far these days to see a discarded mask or gloves just tossed aside so carelessly. And these things can take hundreds of years to break down naturally, just awful for the environment. But with regards to furniture and large objects, Andrew, I've heard that certain local governments will actually pick up those objects for free. Is that actually true? Yes. So, um, uh, it varies from one municipality to another, so you should check with your local municipality. But Uh, There are definitely a number in the Lower Mainland that do pick up uh, large appliances, mattresses, uh, bulky furniture, that sort of item, uh, usually once a year. You learn something new every day, and hopefully some people listening today will remember that fact. Andrew, have we seen the number of illegal dumping incidents actually rise over the past number of years? They have. Uh, In 2020, we had over 47,000 separate incidents of illegal dumping. And that's actually up 8% over 2019. And it's possible the pandemic may have something to do with it, but it's still a a trend we don't want to see. Now, it's easy to drive by or walk along and think, what a waste whenever you see a discarded couch or a mattress on the side of the street. 
but it actually impacts every single one of us because that is tax dollars at work. Andrew, how much does it cost on a yearly basis for governments to remove these items? In the lower mainland, it's essentially a $6 million problem. It's uh, about $5.8 million in total. Um, $3.3 million of that is spent cleaning up illegally dumped waste, and $2.5 million is spent by municipalities on those bulky item pickup programs. People will complain about how potholes aren't being fixed on their roads, schools aren't being made quickly enough, traffic lights aren't being maintenanced, and at the same time, those same people dumping their couch next to a dumpster in the middle of the night are in a way part of the problem because those are taxpayer dollars being rerouted into junk removal. It's definitely tax dollars that could be better spent elsewhere, for sure. I love that Metro Vancouver has this resource now available to the public, and the fact that it rhymes is actually pretty helpful too. Wasteinitsplace.ca. Yeah, and we, we, everybody wants a cleaner environment. And so we do ask that you respect your neighbors and do the right thing to properly dispose of your unwanted items. Um, take advantage of the, the municipal services if you have one. You know, hire a company to take away your items. They'll charge you money, of course, but it's less than the, the, the fines and penalties involved if you, if you illegally dump. And before we let you go, for those that do dump their old furniture next to a dumpster... Isn't it true that waste management crews won't actually even touch these things? One, because it would damage the equipment that they have, but also because of number two, they're not trained for that kind of work. Yeah, items that are left in a public place, sometimes people do it with good intentions. They think that they're recycling by leaving it out in a public place because someone will take it. And sure enough, it may disappear, but that's usually because a a municipal crew has come along and at taxpayer expense cleaned it up. The fact of the matter is, once you leave it in a public place, it it almost inevitably gets damaged, vandalized, rained on, and it becomes worthless. Um, So, if you, you know, we much prefer that people go to wasteinitsplace.ca and and try to find uh, one of the other alternatives for uh, reusing or recycling or properly disposing of an item. He is Andrew Marr, Director of Solid Waste Planning with Metro Vancouver, talking about the new resource if you're thinking about spring cleaning, wasteinitsplace.ca. Andrew, thanks for giving us some time here today. You're very welcome, John. Thank you. And John Jang is on the line with us now. So, John, uh, I, I, I would expect that you weren't planning to toss your mattress by a dumpster, but now you know <laughs> even more why that is not encouraged. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that, too, because when a few months ago they came out with the top calls that were being made to 311, one of the top questions was, is it true you're allowed to dump two mattresses a year? Right. And yeah. no, that is not true. You're not allowed to dump any mattresses any time of the year. Yeah, I wonder who came up with that uh, sort of urban legend. Like, yes, you're allowed to do two, but only two. No, of course, the number is goose egg. You want to do zero of such things. And, uh, you know, I think spreading awareness uh, with this campaign is really important to do because uh, maybe a lot of people do believe that there is a magical number like that. Uh, One thing we didn't cover, though, in this conversation, Jill, that I want to bring up is the fact that it's not just furniture. Old appliances can also be recycled as part of the program. Uh, Certainly, if you do live in a 
uh, in a city, a municipality that does these free pickups on a year-to-year basis. Uh, They can take care of old microwaves or ovens, refrigerators, anything that you don't need any longer. And it's great to to know that so well as people, because I know people in a a lot of cases don't want to throw it away either or want to try and recycle it and get rid of things the best way, the the most environmentally friendly way Mm -hmm. that they can. So this is uh, clarifying some of that for them. Yeah, absolutely. We know that microwaves and sometimes uh, the refrigerators, depending on how old they are, they can be a little detrimental to the environment, of course. So you want to be mindful with how you get rid of that. I should also mention computers, uh, PCs and the components that are inside the computers. They can take hundreds of years as well to break down, as you would naturally expect. So these things also have to be recycled carefully. And right now, Jill, there's a lot. uh, I would say this. There's a high demand for computer parts as a lot more people are working from home. Students are also learning online. So instead of just throwing away your computer, think about uh, disassembling it and then donating all the individual pieces. You never know how useful it might actually be. All right. Sounds good. John, thank you so much. You got it. Thank you very much.